Welcome, every happy warrior, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi resolutely reveals how the world really works. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you for always remembering that a happy warrior knows that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of those things that never changes is a statement made by the British uh, politician and writer and historian and Catholic leader, uh, Lord Acton. Lord Acton was uh, busy and productive in England during the second half of the 19th century. I think he was born in the 1830s, maybe, and he lived into about maybe 1902, something like that. And uh, for a long time, he took over the editorship of a very important Catholic magazine called The Rambler. It used to be edited by Cardinal Newman. And, uh, and then Lord Acton did that. Um, Lord Acton um, responded to an Anglican bishop at one point. Um, I haven't seen the letter of the bishop, but apparently it was making the case that kings and popes and higher personages, members of the aristocracy, um, ought to be judged more leniently than other people because they have the interests of the public at heart and they are more responsible and they're not going to be likely to do anything wrong. And Lord Acton's response was to the very contrary. He said, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he said, uh, if anything, if justice could still be served, I would want to punish the high ranking much more than the low ranking uh, for obvious reasons, right? Because uh, their failures tend to erode values throughout society. When we see those above us getting away with stuff, it it's undermining. It damages the morale of the society and of the country. And uh, and so Lord Acton was uh, was this very interesting guy. By the way, he was also very supportive of the Confederacy during the American Civil War. Uh, so much he was very influential in that. He actually got many members of Parliament uh, to support the Confederacy, and his reason, uh, you know, was was not because he. He, uh, he he liked the values or anything. What he was all about was the danger of a centralized federal government. And he felt that the, the separate states really would do much better. And he, he, he spoke and lectured about this regularly, that a large, powerful, centralized government will only get bigger and bigger and bigger and get more and more powerful and uh, squeeze the space for individuals until they are made to contract and become smaller and smaller uh, in order to make room for the powers of the federal government that are going to constantly increase. And with those powers is going to come corruption. Who would have thought, right? The man was a prophet. But uh, there it is. And that's exactly how it turned out. Why do I mention him? Uh, because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that's the saying for which Lord Acton is best known. 
And uh, we actually see that happening at the present time. Let me, let me explain what I'm talking about. Um, have you recently had the experience of ordering something and then being told that the order is not being fulfilled or the order has been lost or whatever it is, but you're not getting the product you ordered. So then they say, you know, no problem. We'll refund you your money. Just reorder it. You go reorder it and it's 15, 20% more expensive than it was when you ordered in the first place. And then you, uh, you say to them, well, look, uh, this doesn't make any sense. I already ordered it just like yesterday for this price, and now you told me that that's not coming, but I can reorder it, and now the price is 10, 15, 20% more. And what do they answer? They shrug and they say, uh, you know, it's supply chain problems. Uh, you go along and you want to get your car repaired, missing parts, supply chain problems. Uh, what, whatever, you, you know, the prices have gone up, stuff is unavailable. Well, it's because ships are sitting outside Los Angeles Harbor and they can't offload. It's supply chain problems. And then you ask, well, why are there supply chain problems? Because you are a happy warrior and you do not swallow propaganda very easily. You certainly don't swallow political pablum disguised as propaganda very easily. And so, yes, you do want to know what exactly is going on. And you say, well, what's like, why all of a sudden, like, why? And they say, well, come on, you don't you realize we've, you know, we've had 20 months of COVID and, and this is just a response to COVID. And uh, I'm sure you've all heard this: supply chain problems, supply chain problems. We uh, we can't we can't uh, you know price of cars is high because we can't build new cars and people aren't selling their cars on the second hand market. It's all supply chain problems. And uh, uh, you want to get a washing machine? Well, politicians will say, "Big deal, you know, you'll wait a little longer." Uh, but all of this reflects a deterioration in the quality of life. It means. We are now living in a less successful country. If you're in the United States of America, as I am, and if you're elsewhere, then you are also feeling this to a lesser or to a greater extent. Because at the moment, when the American economy um, gets a cough or a sneeze, uh, many other world economies get full-fledged bronchitis and pneumonia. So... Uh, now, I don't think that's going to continue for very much longer because I think that uh, in the, the soon, near, foreseeable future, I do think that the world economy will become less and less dependent on the United States of America, perhaps more dependent on other places, but certainly less dependent on the United States of America. So wherever you are, uh, you know about the supply chain problems. And you know the extent to which your life has been uh, disrupted, you know. And I'm not exaggerating here. For many, for many people, uh, the disruption is very minor. Uh, for other people, it is more serious. Uh, if, if you're trying to run a business and the raw material you need to run your business is not available because of supply chain problems, uh, then it's pretty serious. You know, what are you supposed to do? And uh, 
what everybody is saying is, well, you know, we just got to get over COVID. You know, we'll catch up. It's, it's, we're on, we're on the mend. Uh, this isn't going to go on for much longer. We'll soon be past the supply chain problems. Now, you know, I never like being the bearer of bad news. First of all, the uh, carriers of bad news very often get shot. And secondly, I, I want you to be happy. But I think I, I trust all you happy warriors enough to know that you are in control of your emotions. And even when it falls to my unhappy lot to be the bearer of bad tidings, uh, I am confident that you are still able to maintain an optimistic outlook and a happy disposition and thereby be a blessing to those among whom you live and among those whom you socialize and among those whom you work. And so uh, what is going on? The bad news is that uh, it's not going to be ending very soon. Well, all right, at least by the middle of 2022, it'll be passed, right? And uh, the answer is, I do not think it will be passed. Oh, well, maybe by the end of 22, right? Maybe next November, another year, that should do it. I'm not at all sure that that's the case. In other words, what I'm sorry to be telling you is that uh, I think it's extremely likely that we are looking at this almost as the new reality. There'll be times it'll get a bit better, get a little bit worse, but it's going to be like this for uh, quite a long time to come, much more than a year. Why do I say that? Well, in order for me to explain this, because I don't want to just give you bad news, I want to give you the thought process behind it. I want to give you the technical information so that you yourself will be able to look into it a little more deeply and you will be able to say, yeah, you know, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin is right or he's wrong, and you'll make up your own mind, which is what I want. And, and, and by the way, you'll pardon me on this one, but the one kind of letter that I don't respond to, and I, I get a lot of, of, of letters in general, but this one every now and then, somebody says, could you please give me the uh, websites or the URLs for the place where you got that information or your statistics? I want to be able to share it with my sister-in-law, and I, I haven't been able to find it. And the answer is, I'm really sorry, but I don't have the available time to devote to answering those sorts of questions. If I had, you know, a very big staff and we had a big operation, and so as I could have one person in charge of the research and I can just forward that email and they can then, I would do that, obviously. I, I want to be as helpful as I can. But uh, we are a small, lean operation, and uh, many, many of the times I have to find stuff for myself, which I don't complain about. It's fine. Um, but I'm not, I don't keep records of this. I don't store it away. So I, I just am really sorry, but I'm not going to be able to answer those letters. Um, you are certainly every bit as capable of research as I am. And if I found it, I know that with a little bit of work, you'll find it too. I know it would be a lot easier to just ask me to send it to you, but that is not happening. I'm really sorry for those of you who've asked, but please understand that uh, what little time I have available to answer emails really goes to people who write substantive emails and uh, not to, to requests to basically save your time at the expense of my time. Can't do it. So please uh, forgive me for that and please understand.
So that being the case, um, I want to walk you through uh, what really is going on here, because the truth is that COVID is the excuse. What do I mean by that? Well, as I'm going to show you, there are a lot of people that should be blamed for the supply chain problems. And uh, I'm going to explain how and why that is. And I'm going to show you that many of them are uh, party hacks, bureaucrats, politicians. These are all decisions that have been made. And it's just wonderful for them to have COVID to blame it on. Uh, as I've, I've told you in a previous uh, show, and uh, I'm sorry, but we did not have a show last week. Uh, we missed last week, but the week before, uh, I did point out that, uh, you know, if, if um, somebody has been uh, defrauding, you know, an employee of a company has been helping themselves uh, to money, they've been writing themselves checks, and sooner or later it's going to be found out and you know how it is i mean there are people getting people do get into fixes and they they steal some money from the firm from the company from the employer and they truly believe they're going to be able to pay it back and they intend to pay it back but when that doesn't happen they steal a little more and then a little more and they know it's going to be found out but uh, human beings have the capacity to live in hope and they carry on. And then one day, there's a huge fire accidentally breaks out, consumes the entire building. The inflagration destroys all the records. This is like the biggest celebration for this person because now he's never going to be caught. He gets away with it. The f all the missing money will be blamed on the fire. And if anyone even finds out about it. And uh, a lot of companies were like this after 9-11, where there was so much destruction for, of companies housed in the World Trade Center in New York in 2001, that in many cases, they did have to start all over again with record keeping. And who knows, you know, there might well have been many crimes covered up by those collapsing towers. Um, so for people in this kind of situation who are behaving dishonestly to have some big calamity that just overwhelms everything and uh, on which all problems can be blamed this is like a, a tremendous celebration it's it's a it's a great relief and covid is for many decision makers in the united united states exactly that kind of celebration it's wonderful because it explains all the things that are problematic, such as the supply chain, which had COVID not happened, eventually they would have been blamed. People would have seen what has caused the problems we're experiencing. Now, uh, let me give you an example, if I may, um, because I want you to understand how these things happen. And, um, and, and I'm, look, many of you probably get this already, and uh, you don't need any complicated explanation. I don't mean to give a complicated explanation, but let me give you an example from marriage. And, and this has happened to me uh, as a rabbi. Uh, it's happened more than once. Uh, one particular time I'm thinking of is a couple came to uh, sit down with me. They made an appointment, sit down in my office. And uh, here's what they tell me. Um, the husband opens up with a very contrite expression on his face 
and uh, he he looks as if he uh, is accepting blame, and he says, uh, "I made a big mistake. I made one big mistake. I made a terrible mistake." And I can see from the the look on his wife's face, I got a pretty good idea what it is. And um, she says, "Yeah, um, he uh, he he met somebody uh, on Facebook. Bottom line is he was unfaithful to me, and he betrayed our marriage. And I I don't know how I can get past that. I don't know how I can live with this." And uh, all my girlfriends are telling me I've got to get out. I've spoken to a therapist, told me I've got to get out of this. And uh, and the man says, look, uh, Rabbi, what I'm hoping is you can help me persuade her to forgive me. It was just one bad mistake. It didn't mean anything. It was just one bad mistake. And um, it, it meant nothing. I'll, I'll, you know, it'll never happen again. And, and they tell me the story of, of what happened. And so he says, so that's why, you know, I've been a good husband up till now, and I'm going to be a good husband again. This was just one, and he keeps on repeating that phrase, one mistake. And all of a sudden, you know, sometimes the good Lord guides you in conversations, guides your thoughts, guides you in things to say. It doesn't happen often, but every now and then uh, something happens, and I am imparted without me even knowing exactly how and why i'm imparted a bright shining fragment of wisdom that is exactly apropos of the circumstances that i'm confronting and that's what happened in in this moment as well all of a sudden i guess i guess he had repeated the phrase rabbi i just made one mistake can't you forgive one mistake and i um I, I got this little incandescent spark of wisdom imparted to me by the Lord. And, um, and here's what I said to him. Uh, his name wasn't John, but let's say John. Uh, John, you didn't make one mistake. A mistake is when you leave your cell phone at a shop. A mistake is feeding your dog cat food by mistake. A mistake is putting salt in your coffee instead of sugar. Those are mistakes. But this was a very bad decision you made and a very wrong thing you did. And he started to talk to say, yes, you know, and and then I, I stopped him and I said, John, it's actually worse than that. It wasn't, it not only wasn't it a mistake, Not only wasn't it a bad decision, but it was many bad decisions. As a matter of fact, it was actually 10 terrible decisions and 10 very wrong actions. And he looked puzzled, and I said, uh, tell me if I say anything incorrect. And, uh, And they were both nodding while I continued. I said, you reached out on Facebook to a girl you had known years ago. That was bad decision number one. Do you agree? And then when she responded, you wrote back to her. That was bad decision number two. Do you agree? And she nodded vigorously and he nodded um, like a, a dog that's just been beaten. 
And then I said, uh, then you exchanged photographs with her, right? That was called bad decision number three. And then you agreed to FaceTime with her or Zoom with her, whatever it was, um, a visual conversation online. Wrong action, bad decision number four. Do you agree? You did that a second time right? That was bad decision number five. You then arranged to meet her. That was bad decision number six. Do you understand that this wasn't a mistake? And he just looked down at the floor. I said, you understand? It wasn't even a bad decision. We're only up to number six bad decision when you actually arranged to meet this girl you knew years back. And then you met her a second time, this time in a somewhat private locale, actually a hotel room. That was bad decision number seven. Do you understand that asking your wife to forgive a mistake is very different from asking her to forgive seven bad decisions, seven bad actions? But we're not done yet. You shut the door and locked it. That was a very bad decision, because at least if you would have left the door open, and, and I've seen people do this in situations where they have to have a meeting in a hotel room with someone of the opposite gender, and uh, they wedge the door open. It just It's a different message. But when you shut the door and locked it, that was bad decision number eight. That was wrong action number eight. Do you understand? And then... Clothing was removed. That would be bad action and bad decision number nine. And then there was physical contact and intimacy. That was bad decision number 10. That was bad action number 10. A bad decision and a bad action. To ask your wife to forgive you for a mistake. Hey, Husbands and wives do that all the time. Mrs. Lappin probably should construct a sort of flag that she can just wave that says, yeah, I forgive you again. Because mistakes can be forgiven. But a bad decision, can that be forgiven? How about 10 bad decisions? Could you tell me now the logic whereby you are asking your wife to forgive, not one, not two, not three, and he waved his arm, he said, I know, I know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten bad decisions. Why would you ask, how can you ask her to forgive that? And there was a long silence. He had nothing to say. And um, that sort of ends the story for the purposes of today's show. I will tell you, however, that just as a matter of interest, and we can discuss this some other time, I then said, now, I have a reason. And I turned to her. I said, I have a reason why you should move forward. And the only way to move forward is to forgive him. But uh, it's an act of graciousness on your part, not anything he deserves. And my reason for that is... And then I, I went on to explain um, why it is the case. Uh, I said that only you can decide, but 
there is a real question in my mind whether you and your children will be better off as a single mom and as a single woman or you will all be better off if you try and rebuild the family and get past this betrayal it doesn't mean necessarily that there is forgiveness maybe forgiveness takes 10 years I'm not, you know, you can go ahead and try and pull things together without necessarily forgiving him. But the real question you have to ask yourself is not the advice given to you by girlfriends who many of whom are divorced and kind of would like to see you in the same boat and not by therapists whose entire training is self-fulfillment and uh, and women don't need men many, many times among many therapists, not all. Uh, but you really got to ask yourself in your own life, what, I mean, do you really think you will be better off? And um, that's the, uh, that is the question that she had to ask herself. Uh, I, uh, shall I tell you, should I tell you what, what happened at the, at the end of that story? Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's nice to be able to give a, a happy ending um, or a somewhat happy ending. Uh, they are still married. Uh, their children are now grown. The children never knew. And I mean, they were obviously aware that tremendous tension was going on in the family. It was a very bad time. But, you know, many families do go through difficult times and the children know that. But they never knew what it was exactly. And uh, they still don't, as far as I know. And uh, the husband and wife are now together. Um, you know, I, is it exactly the way it was before this happened? Of course not. It leaves scars. But um, have they had many happy years since then? Yeah, they have. And, um, and needless to say, um, for, for a number of years on the anniversary of, of that meeting, uh, they both used to separately call and uh, you know just say we're we're together and we want to thank you and and it always meant a great deal to me but that's the um okay so what am i telling you my friends marriage is a complex and delicate system with many many moving parts you know uh, he's got a physical being and a spiritual being she has a physical being and a spiritual being they have an economic relationship they have a physical relationship they have a relationship with family they have a relationship with friends there's a lot of moving parts in a marriage it is a complex and delicate system and it seldom gets destroyed by one big bombshell explosion Marriages are usually destroyed by an extended sequence of many bad decisions and wrong behaviors. That's what usually happens. And so, and, and I'm, sure, I, I'm sure that makes sense. I mean, you, you, you can see that. Um, this, you know, this wasn't one mistake. This was 10 bad decisions that took place over the course of about six, seven, eight weeks. It was nearly two months it took for all this to play out. It was 10 weeks, eight weeks of bad decisions and bad actions that nearly destroyed this particular marriage. It wasn't one thing. And the same is true 
for something that is perhaps even more complex and more delicate a system than a marriage, and that is what we call an economy. An economy is a very complex and delicate system with many, many moving parts. Uh, for instance, in the United States, decisions are made by a few hundred million market decision makers and also by 7,410 state legislators and by 542 federal officers, uh, all the uh, representatives in Congress, the 100 senators in the Senate, the president, the vice president, uh, representatives from four, four delegates to the House of Representatives from U.S. territories and the District of Columbia and one resident commissioner from the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. And you add all these together and there's a lot of people making decisions, but you have to divide them into two. There's about uh, two or three hundred million decision makers who are not necessarily in contact with one another, but each of whom makes their own decisions about their own lives, their own decisions whether to buy a push lawnmower or an electrically driven lawnmower or a gasoline-powered lawnmower. Uh, and then you've got these governmental representatives, followed by many tens of thousands of governmentally employed bureaucrats, and these people also make decisions. For instance, one of the decisions they make is a special tax on gasoline-driven lawnmowers because that produces uh, fumes that disturb the, uh, the, the carbon dioxide ratio in the atmosphere and causes climate change, and that causes rising sea levels. So for the good of everybody, um, you find that if you want to buy one kind of mower, you might well find an additional tax on that one for the public good. But uh, you do have to see that there's a lot of people making decisions. It's a very complex system, and that makes it a very delicate system with many, many, many moving parts. And that means that economies get hurt almost never by one cataclysmic bombshell explosion. But what really happens is that economies get destroyed by a lengthy extended sequence of many bad decisions and many wrong actions. That's how it works. Now let's explore uh, what do we mean when we speak about an economy. What we really are talking about is a lot of people engaged in a big, tremendous market where people are exchanging goods and services with one another and um, building relationships, by the way, that way, which is part of the reason that the good Lord designed things in such a way so that we all do better. We live better with less effort if we trade with one another than if we all try to satisfy our own needs separately, independently, and alone. So um, an example, let's say um, I have a, uh, a, uh, a car, right? I've got a Dodge Durango SUV and it needs attention. Now, it doesn't really, it's it behaving beautifully, but 
let's imagine for the moment that uh, that it needs uh, work on it now let's also imagine that i possess the skills to sort of muddle my way through the work that it needs the thing about uh, modern cars these days is number one they need so little attention it's rather miraculous when you think about it um so little attention you know when, when last did anybody change spark plugs i used to i used to do that on cars all the time when i was a kid and so uh yeah, you don't have to do that. But anyway, let's say for the moment that uh, that I am going to to be uh, doing that, and that's going to take me, you know, all all afternoon. And then I realize that I could simply give it to the Dodge mechanic whom I know, very good mechanic, and he'll take care of it, and he'll charge me four hundred dollars. Now, the small thinking approach is, what? Why waste $400? You could do it yourself for free. Yeah, you're right. I, I could. You know, spare parts would cost very little. And it would just, and, you know, at the end of the afternoon, it would be fixed. But, um, uh, and I will have, you know, $400 extra in my pocket that I didn't have to spend. And that's what a small-minded person would think. But I hope I'm not a small-minded person. And so I say, no, wait a second. And I call up Dodge mechanic Bruce. And I say, Bruce, how much will it cost to take care of this? He says, it'll probably be about $400. Okay, great. Let's do it. I immediately then call up a client um, who is uh, getting some or has been asking me to do some work for them. And I say to him, look, um, what's probably needed for the next phase of your uh, entrepreneurial ambition is a business plan carefully written up. I think I've got enough information from you that I could do it for you. I could do it this afternoon and it's going to cost $1,500. Is that worth it to you or would you rather uh, do it yourself over the next few weeks? He said, are you kidding? I'd much rather be, a be able to start uh, raising capital off it immediately and the holdup has been, I haven't had the uh, the business plan. So if you can do that this afternoon, that'll be great. So uh, we go ahead and do that. Meanwhile, the Bruce, the mechanic, was going to mow his lawn that afternoon. But um, instead, he found a kid down the block who would mow his lawn for $50. So his afternoon is free. He doesn't have to mow the lawn. His wife will be happy. The lawn is going to be mowed. He gets to work on my car. I get to work on the uh, on the business plan for my client. And let's take a look and see at the end of the day what has happened. So I earned, because I no longer had to fix my car, I earned $1,500, of which I had to pay $400 to Bruce the Dodge Mechanic. And that left me with a plus of $1,100. So I am really, really happy that I listened to my advice. Meanwhile, Bruce the Dodge Mechanic was going to mow the lawn. But now, in a short period, much less time than it was going to, that it would have taken on that, he is now earning $400, of which he pays $50 to the kid down the block who's going to mow his lawn. And so Bruce has $350 in his pocket, and I'm not the only 
a person whose car he worked on that afternoon. So he's probably got several of them, all for the price of $50 getting somebody to mow his lawn. And let's not forget the kid down the block who's as happy as could be because he's got $50 that he didn't have yesterday or this morning. So everybody is smiling. Everybody is jumping in happiness. And that's wonderful. It's a good thing because nobody compelled us into any of these actions. And since we each now have more money than we had before, we are able to spend on other things which make other people happy. I buy my family ice cream, so the, uh, the ice cream store gets happy, and so on and so forth. All because we are all busy serving one another. And so a place, ideally, with completely free consensual trade. In other words, anybody who forces me and says, what? You're going to um, uh, employ Bruce, the Dodge mechanic. We are not going to let him do it for you for $400. We are insisting you have to pay him $600. And Bruce, the Dodge mechanic, says, uh, Rabbi Lappin, what can I do? I was very happy to do it for 400 But these people are very powerful, and they have control over my livelihood. If I uh, do it at the price I wanted to do it, they'll cause me to get no extra work. And so I have to go with their 600. At that point, I say, you know what, Bruce, the mechanic, uh, you'll forgive me, but uh, at $600 is not worth it to me. Um, I'm, I am just going to do it myself. I may well say that. Maybe I won't, but maybe I will. At any rate, depending on how much intrusion by a third party into a consensual free transaction there is, that transaction may be completely stifled. It may not happen at all. And that's a really important point to understand because what I'm going to show you is that little by little, by a lengthy process of thousands of little actions or not such little actions and little bad decisions or not such little bad decisions over an extended period of time, the economy has been destroyed. It's still walking around like the proverbial chicken without a head. It's not proverbial. It's true. Um, you know, anyone who's lived on a farm and, uh, and, and seen chickens being slaughtered um, will see. They, they actually do run around with blood spurting out for a few moments. Uh, yeah. And the chicken is dead. It just, it, it's still walking. Uh, an economy gets badly injured, may not be completely dead, but an economy gets badly injured by third-party intrusion into free market consensual transactions. Who are the third parties? Government, it's bureaucracies, it's trade unions. Okay, that is what changes everything. Let's now look at that in just a little bit more detail, if you don't mind. So you see... Um, any time it becomes easier for buyers and sellers and traders to find each other, every time there is something like maybe the arrival of newspaper classified ads so I can look up for a mechanic, or a yellow pages, the prevalence of the old yellow pages uh, telephone directory, whatever development made it easier for people to serve one another resulted in a big increase in economic productivity 
and it became very advantageous to live in that society that had enjoyed this big increase in economic productivity. And this is why every single time there's been a major increase in technological capability for bringing people together, it's always resulted in a monumental increase in the creation of wealth. And so this is why it is that uh, the kind of income and the kind of uh, uh, amenities of life that your grandfather enjoyed are vastly exceeded by those that you enjoy. Because, and just as examples, just think about it, um, 1800, right? The first railway locomotive comes about in 1800. And so all of a sudden, it's now getting possible to move goods around the country and make goods available hundreds of miles from where they were made or grown or cut or harvested or mined out of the ground. And so 1800, big increase. Uh, 1844, the telegraph, all of a sudden people could send information and say, um, you know, the harvest in the Midwest has been great and somebody in Philadelphia could say, great, I want to place an order for this amount. None of this could happen before May 1844 when Samuel Morse presented the world with the telegraph. And um, uh, about 50 years after that, about 1900, television, excuse me, um, radio, not television, radio in about 1900, big increase in communication. Uh, 1950 television notice by the way that there are approximately 50 year cycles here and sure enough that's exactly the fact Uh, from railway locomotives about 50 years later to the telegraph about another 50 years to radio uh, and the telephone by the way and about another 50 years to television and then from 1950 with the arrival of commercial television 2000 the internet And again, another huge burst of economic creativity. That's exactly how this works. But meanwhile, while all of these great things are happening and people are more and more connected and more and more economic productivity is is occurring and more and more wealth is being created in the United States as well as in other countries, uh, there was also something else going on. What are the other things that were going on? Well, There were regulations. Uh, One of those regulations was the um, uh, environmental regulations, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. And all of a sudden, the property you thought that you could sell, you can't because it turns out to have a little muddy puddle on it. And because of rules having to do with, uh, with waterways and because the agency was foolishly given the authority to decree what is a governed waterway and what isn't, uh, they had the power to turn muddy puddles into, uh, into parts of a field that couldn't be touched, couldn't be used. And they did. And countless farmers saw the value of their property, and not only farmers, developers, all of a sudden, somebody who was going to be selling that piece of land to a buyer who wanted to buy it, all of a sudden, the deal fell through because it got decreed to be a protected wetland. Now, don't think this doesn't have a consequence. Uh, 
especially when it's part of a destructive sequence, right? If, if I FaceTime with a, a woman and she is, uh, uh, you know, shall we say a representative at a car dealer and I'm trying to get a new car for my wife, and we talk over FaceTime, that in itself is fine. But if that FaceTime talk was like the couple who came to see me, and that FaceTime talk was, in fact, a bad decision in the midst of a whole bunch of other bad decisions, this just took the calamity further, well, that's exactly what we see here. The number of pages of federal regulations has been skyrocketing for the last 50 years, absolutely skyrocketing. And, um, and each one of those regulations, although the politicians sign those bills with a flourish of the fountain pen and, oh, this is a new era in America, the people are protected, or this is protected, or this is improved, or up till now people are having... Every single one of those also has an unintended consequence. And the unintended consequence is almost always suppression of the economy. But each one is a small one, right? And if, the, uh, if that husband had only spoken on Facebook or connected on Facebook with this woman that he knew years ago and left it there, right, it would be okay. But things build on themselves and build on one another. And these regulations get added on and on and on until the, uh, the whole structure begins to look like an upside-down pyramid balancing precariously on its point, about to fall at any moment. Now, please note, I'm talking uh, here only about pre-COVID situations. Uh, COVID has obviously aggravated it, and it's possible, I don't know, but it's possible that the crisis that we are seeing now with the, quote, supply chain problems, maybe they would have taken another six months to arrive, uh, because, as you can understand, uh, when trucking companies are forced by President Joe Biden to have vaccination mandates, that all their drivers have to be vaccinated according to federal law, which uh, Lord Acton would have disapproved of, um, what happens is a whole lot of drivers say, you know what, I was a year away from retirement, I'm quitting now. I don't want to do it. I don't want to have stuff stuck into my body that I don't know more about. I'm not doing it. I just don't want to do it. And so 60,000 truck drivers vanish almost overnight. And so um, you wonder, right, is it, is, is it difficult getting goods from the harbors? You know, most goods come from China uh, via ship, and now they go from ship onto a truck. But if there's 60,000 drivers missing, well, is it any surprise that when you go to the local, your local hardware store and you try to get something, it isn't there? And the salespeople say, I'm sorry, it's supply chain problems. I'm sure you know all about it. Yes, of course I know all about it. Exactly. That's exactly what we're talking about. It, it happens, and it's been exaggerated tremendously because of the COVID uh, situation. But I'm talking about stuff that has been a long sequence of bad decisions and wrong actions that have been 
going on, and I'm, I'm taking it back to the early 1960s. Okay, so, um, you know, more like 60 years ago, the last 60 years, uh, people have assumed that the economy is so strong that you don't have to worry. You can do anything to it. You can regulate it. You can bureaucratize it. You can tax it. It doesn't matter. But again, you know, anybody who has had any experience in the real world knows that there is such a thing as killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. You can. Uh, there is the old, there's an old Jewish story of uh, somebody who uh, discovered that he can feed his horse 90% expensive oats and 10% free sawdust. And the, the, the horse will still eat it. And a few weeks later or months later, whatever it was, his friend comes to him and says, so how are you doing? Because every time they saw each other, this guy would say, hey, you can't imagine, you know, my horse is taking my, my wagon around doing all my business and I'm feeding him almost nothing. My feed costs nothing. I go over to the carpenter store and I pick up a bag of sawdust. He's happy that I'm taking the sawdust away and my horse doesn't mind. Uh, I moved it from 90-10 to 70-30. The horse was happy with 30% sawdust and 70% oats. And then I moved it to 50-50. And, uh, and this is great. I mean, all my transport needs are almost free. And the guy said, well, fantastic. So what did you do? He said, I was just getting him used to 90-10, uh, 10% oats and 90% sawdust when the darn horse went and died on me. So, yeah, you know, you, you can squeeze so hard that you kill the horse. It, it can easily be done. And uh, that is exactly what's been going on for the last 60 years. And that is why we have supply chain problems. You think about it. When last did you buy something that wasn't made in China? How, how long has it been? What, you want to buy a pair of slippers? It's getting to be winter. Made in China. Um, you need, well, I mean, think about it, kitchen good stuff, uh, even even food. I mean, I don't eat tilapia for very good reason, but a whole lot of it is imported from China. Would you believe it? Fish. You want to eat fish? Chinese imported tilapia. Um, so what, what went wrong? Think about it. What went wrong? Why is it that in 1962, everything was made in America? And I did a show a few months back on tools, uh, the quality tools. You remember when Sears, for those of you who, who are into tools like I am, you could buy Craftsman tools. Today, Craftsman tools is Chinese made with very little quality control. You've got to be very careful. But there was a time you bought a Craftsman tool. You didn't have to worry. And if perchance it broke, they'd give you a new one. That's how much they believed in their product. That was an American-made tool. So what went wrong? Well, one of the things that went wrong is uh, the unionization of American industry, right? That became a very, very big problem. Well, you might say, but surely unions serve a need and fill a purpose. Well, uh, yeah, all, you know, extremes are bad. And when an economy lurches from extreme to extreme, it's obviously awful. But um, for many, many, many years now, uh, the condition of working in the United States of America has not been a problem, but the, uh, the administrations of uh, Bill Clinton and subsequently um, uh, Barack Obama and not helped a whole lot by the administration of George W. Bush 
uh, these administrations significantly strengthen the unions. And unions today are causing you real pain. Now, uh, I think you should all be aware of how teachers and educational unions used COVID in order to extract additional salaries, benefits, and uh, and uh, concessions of all kinds from the um, uh, from the schooling and from the educational system, right? And sure enough, they they did. So they squeezed incredible. Uh, wouldn't you like a year's paid vacation? Well, what do you think teachers had? They literally didn't have to work on full pay for the year that COVID was uh, at its uh, at its um, at its worst. How about that, right? Who wouldn't want that? Well, if you are represented by a union, then you too can live in that fashion. Um, take the John Deere company, right? Now, why why am I interested in John Deere? Because when you go into a uh, private, you know, a, uh, a boat engine room, right? I'm talking, you know, a 20-foot boat, a 30-foot boat, a 60-foot boat. Uh, you go into the, and probably bigger boats as well, I don't know. But you go into a boat engine room, you'll very often find a John Deere engine. You'll also find a Caterpillar engine, or you might find uh, an imported engine. But John Deere is an American maker. You all know the green tractor, right? The John Deere tractor. Uh, it's it's such an icon. I mean, what what boy didn't have a toy John Deere tractor as he growing up, right? Green tractor with yellow wheels. Come on. I mean, who, who can resist that? And so um, the uh, United Auto Workers Union voted down a a recent offer of an increase. They went on strike. They are uh, literally about to kill the John Deere company, but they don't know that because what they say is, oh, conditions have improved and the company is making money, so it's time for us to clamp down. And uh, the union is looking for a new deal with the John Deere company. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. John Deere has offered a, uh, an increase of... Um, giving John Deere employees, 10,000 of them, by the way, an immediate 10% increase in pay. By the way, may I ask, when did you get a 10% increase in pay last? Um, plus an 8,500 bonus for every worker, plus an additional 5% pay raise in 2023, and another one in 2025. So by 2025, a 20% increase in pay from now, and plus an 8,500 bonus. John Deere workers rejected that on October the 10th, 2021. Obviously, John Deere shares on the stock exchange dropped down significantly, naturally, and uh, John Deere has said, okay, well, we may have to move production overseas. And that is a little microcosm view of why it is that so much is produced in China. Uh, you are told the story, oh, it's slave labor, and that's uh, you know, un-American, and we can't do that. We've got to, yeah, we get all that, okay? But the reality is that uh, unionization of American industry has made it virtually impossible 
to produce anything in the United States of America. And you have to ask yourself, you know, how wise is that? How wise is it for a country to allow everything it needs, including pharmaceuticals and medicine and tools, everything is manufactured outside the country and has to be brought across on ships and then put on trucks or trains and brought to where you need it. How wise is that really? Right? Not wise at all. Why has it happened? By a lengthy sequence of many, many, many bad decisions and destructive actions each one on its own was able to be interpreted for the good. Oh, this is a wonderful thing we're doing. But when you put them all together, we have a, an economy that is rocking back on its heels after a series of bad body punches, and it's about to go down on the mat for the count. That's where we're at. And so you know, you got to see it. This isn't just from COVID. I mean, this this is before. Um, there's a rule about restriction of hazardous substances. Now, uh, this isn't a U.S. law. It's a uh, United a, a, a European Union law. But um, almost all electronic products are affected by the restrictions. So, uh, lamps, power tools, computers, household appliances machines, anything that America used to make, now if you're counting on, on selling in Europe becomes a huge problem because anything, any part of this product that has uh, more than 0.1% of polybrominated biphenyl, and I'm, I'm not sure what that chemical is, but the same thing would be said about a dozen or 20 different chemicals. The European Union says, well, even if the plastic casing of a radio has more than 0.01 polybrominated biphenyl, then the entire radio would be banned from the European Union. Okay, that's a regulation that is brought into being by EU legislators uh, who are saying, oh, we're protecting the health of our citizens. Okay, fine. But you're also destroying the economy. Um, there is a, uh, in America, they, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, right? Everybody assumed that was just about uh, various reporting requirements for the, uh, uh, the SEC and, uh, and uh, basically just to keep American business honest. But what most of us didn't know is that the Dodd-Frank Act, D-O-D-D, the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, and Frank was a dreadful congressman, Barney Frank, bad, bad guy, uh, in my view. Um, when it was signed, it included a provision that public companies have to be able to prove that their source minerals do not come from any places that have a conflict or any financial connection with conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or any adjoining country. Do you know what that means? So minerals that now have to be proven not to derive from any business that is involved in any of these African countries, tin, gold, tungsten, tantalum, minerals that are vitally important for industry. And so uh, now if a company needs these raw materials, 
they have to go through a hugely expensive and lengthy process of getting it signed off on by the U.S. government, by bureaucrats that are set up after the Dodd-Frank Act was passed. Bureaucrat, a whole bureaucratic department is set up to enforce the all the provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act. And so, um, again, you know, so you think to yourself, why would I manufacture in the United States? Move manufacturing offshore. And I don't have to worry about dealing with the Dodd-Frank Act about um, minerals that may be coming from any company that has any financial connection with a company doing business in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, etc., etc. Um, there is... Um, um, oh, here, here's another one. A waste from electrical and electronic equipment. So uh, the rule now is that anybody who manufactures electronic equipment has to also set aside money uh, for the uh, for the waste collection of that equipment I, I don't know the exact details but basically manufacturers are now involved in having to pay for the ultimate recycling of that equipment so uh, in other words I think what this means is that a business that sells computers must also collect the old computers it receives and return them to their respective manufacturers. And whether that's only in Europe, also in the United States, it's neither here nor there because these are regulations that are expanding like fruit flies in a biology lab. It just doesn't stop. Um, they, they also say that uh, any company that produces something with a battery inside has to be able to collect not only the object, but also the battery for recycling. Um, there's another uh, law that was passed, the Drug Supply Chain Security Act. That's an FDA thing. Again, a whole new office, a whole new bureaucracy. I don't know how many employees had to be set up um, for... Uh, to follow the and to regulate the Drug Supply Chain Security Act. Um, the number of years information has to be kept and uh, um, suppliers, again, huge additional expenses. And when they passed it, the politicians all proudly pounded their chests and told their constituents, we've passed this long-awaited law about traceability of pharmaceutical. Yeah, and, and I'm quite sure there are aspects to it that are positive, but there are also very serious aspects of it that are negative, and those were never spoken about. And that is the, the point, that the accumulated effect of all these thousands of regulations, one after the other, uh, all mount up and nobody notices. You know, each one is another. The impact is a half a percent. The impact is another three cents on the price of something. But little by little, it gets to the point where people say, you know what, it doesn't make sense for me to keep my business in the United States. And uh, and so on on every level you've got to see. Um, as soon as government or bureaucracies and regulations put a finger on the scale, they're no longer allowing a free market transaction. And many people at that point say, "Yeah, you know what? Not for me. Not going to do it." And every single transaction that is a free consensual transaction between free independent parties produces wealth for everybody. It's good for everybody. So um, 
so now if I want to buy a car, I am going to be maybe forced to buy an electrical car, which I don't want. You know why? Because everybody who pays taxes in the United States is paying a certain amount. So every purchaser of a Tesla gets a nearly $10,000 gift. That's pretty nice. But now it's no longer a free market transaction between me and the car dealer. Now there's an outside effect. And you are being taxed to influence my economic decision. Uh, would you like to have less expensive gasoline? Well, if it was just a case of us being able to buy gas from gasoline, yeah, fine. But the government said, no, you may not build a new pipeline. We're canceling the pipeline that President Trump authorized. That's not going to happen. Okay, great. You have now diminished the likelihood of an oil spill by 0.000047%. Bully for you. How wonderful. Bingo. I've reduced the likelihood of an oil leak. Okay, but you've also made sure that everybody's paying an extra 30 cents a gallon on gasoline. Is that right? Do we want that? Well, that is little by little what erodes the vitality of an economy. Um, you want to buy electricity? Uh, I'd really like to buy electricity, or you're an electricity manufacturer, and I'd like to generate electricity from nuclear because it's very effective and very economic. No, you've got to generate a certain amount of your electricity with wind and solar panels. And so the result is Californians pay uh, the highest rates of electricity of anywhere in the country, and they have the highest rate of brownouts and blackouts when the power gets shut down because there isn't enough electricity. No more free market transactions. Um, you want to trade with China? The government decides what you can do and what you can't do. Um, you want to uh, negotiate directly with those who employ you? No, you're not allowed to. Only your union can represent you in those negotiations. Um, that's how you, you want to collect money that was loaned to th certain third world countries, places like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Egypt, uh, Mexico, Philippines, Turkey, Venezuela. You are in some way involved through maybe through your 401k, through your retirement plan, through your investments, but you are connected to a bank that loaned money to these countries. And the government now says, we should forgive those loans. So you can't collect on money that was lent in your name. How can that not have an impact on the return that you are getting? All these things, one after another, thousands and thousands of them, add up to ongoing stress on the system. Keeps on happening and keeps on adding up. What can you do? Well, that's where we're at. And so what I wanted to try and explain is that the supply chain problem, yeah, and that was going to happen anyway. Any country that makes sure that everything it needs is manufactured in other countries and it has to be imported is sooner or later going to run into supply chain problems. My friends, nothing to do with COVID. It's the result of thousands of really bad decisions and thousands of terrible actions 
taken over the last 60 years in the United States of America. And um, remem remember this, that, um, you know, heaven forbid when there's a plane accident and, uh, and the, the plane comes down and many people lose their lives, a big tragedy, uh, every agency comes to investigate. The, um, uh, there, there are uh, civilian agencies, there are government, there's military, there are all kinds of agencies that uh, examine the Air Transport Safety Board, and, um, the accident investigation. It, all, there's a lot of agencies that show up at the crash site to find out what happened. Now, not to be a wise guy, but I can tell you what happened. It's really pretty simple. The airplane came down. You want to know why? It's because of something called gravity. My friends, the question you should ask is not what brought the plane down. That's easy. It's called gravity. The question you've got to ask is what keeps thousands of airplanes airborne every day, transporting millions of people from one place to another safely, speedily, and effectively? What keeps the plane in the air? That's the miracle. Don't make the mistake of inverting the miracle. The plane falling down is natural. The plane staying airborne and not having accidents or any mishaps, now that's the miracle. You see, an economy declining and an economy falling apart, please know it's like a plane falling down. It's natural. It's the default situation. Call it spiritual gravity if you like, but what it is is what I've been telling you. As um, in, in everybody trying to grab themselves a little bit of the action, uh, everybody lobbying, everybody lobbying governmental officials to put on regulations that will benefit their company and hurt other companies, uh, regulations giving additional power to trade unions, being able to force tra trade unions, being able to force employees to be part, all of these things, and trade unions then participating in the corruption by being part of the largest political donors in the United States of America. All of these things. The natural situation is for an economy not to work. Just go and have a look at the economy in Somalia. Just go and have a look at the economy in Bangladesh. Go and have a look at the economy in Zimbabwe. Go and have a look at the economy in Venezuela. That's the natural condition. And those economies that I've mentioned represent many, many more economies that are also in a shambles. And throughout the course of the last thousand years of human history, economies have been in the shambles much more than they've been the effective juggernauts of wealth creation that we've seen in uh, recent times. And so the question is not, why are things going downhill so badly? The question is, why were things so good for so long? That is the real question. And I'm sure you can figure out the answer to that all by yourselves. Maybe it'll be fun to leave you with that. If, if you don't get it, then maybe I'll tell you next week. But um, what we're seeing now is a sad but almost inevitable decline when values drop out of the bottom of a society, when patriotism goes away. And, um, and there's, there's more reasons as well. But please don't believe that the supply chain problems are caused by COVID. No, they're not. COVID is the way, is the excuse that we use so we don't have to blame 
all the people who really are responsible for the mess that we're in. And, um, and that's something that, that should be quite clear to everybody. Now, you remember uh, in the second part of the last show uh, we did together, uh, I interviewed Ruchi Karval, who is the author of a wonderful book that Life Codex Publishing has just published called Soul Construction. And what the book does is take um, eight character traits, things like forgiveness, things like using speech correctly, things like using silence correctly. Uh, could, you, could you use some instruction in how to become a more forgiving person? And that means not only forgiving other people, but it means forgiving yourself too. Uh, could you do with having a little training in how to use speech correctly? Uh, how do you silence correctly? How about knowing when to keep quiet? Could you use that? Uh, I think so. Most of us could. And uh, Ruchi is a, uh, a, a very vibrant and vivacious person who is a thoughtful teacher and lecturer. And her book, Soul Construction, is essentially a, a roadmap to improving these particular character traits in each of us. And um, I uh, interviewed her. You heard the first part of the interview last time. You're going to hear the next part of the interview now. And uh, I think I think you're going to enjoy it. She's a pleasure to talk with, and you'll enjoy listening to her. But uh, even more than that, you will enjoy finding out more about this book. It's a novel idea, isn't it? When I mean, when you come to think of it, because uh, as a society becomes more secularized, we tend to think of ourselves as animalistic, oh, sophisticated animals and developed animals and evolved animals, but still in exactly the same way that animals have no choice over their behavior, neither do we. And this is why um, I can show you, I mean, magazine articles that I've kept um, that had, I mean, cover stories even on why um, uh, disloyalty in a marriage, adultery in a marriage uh, is hardwired. You know, you can't help it. It's, it, look, don't animals do it? So why are you surprised that you do it? You know, how helpful and how, how, pers how helpful is this perspective on reality for a society? Obviously not, and don't for a moment think it does not have financial implications on the economy. And so uh, along comes this book and teaches, wait a second, you're not an animal, you're a human being. You can actually change it. If you don't like the way you've been talking to your kids, right? You don't like the way you're talking to your spouse. You don't like the way you speak to your sibling. Hey, go to the chapter on, on speech and, and learn how you can modify the way you use speech. Uh, maybe there are times where you wish you'd be able to exert the willpower to just shut up and not say something. Well, again, this, that's what this book is about. Um, it's, it's a little book. It's an easy and enjoyable read. Uh, she, she personalizes it very much, and uh, I, mean, I found it very, very readable. Otherwise, we wouldn't have published it. We decided that it was definitely something you all would find useful. So um, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Ruchi Karval uh, right now. And then uh, after that, I will be back with a few other pointers before we sign off for today. Welcome again, Ruchi Koval. Thank you for being again with us. We were together last week, and uh, and it was it was a very uplifting conversation. And I know that today will be no different. Thank you. Um, 
this we're talking about your new book, Soul Construction. Yes. And um, the subtitle is worth noting as well. It's a long subtitle, but I am the master of long subtitles. <laughs> so for me, this is just normal. Uh, shape, shape your character using eight steps from the timeless Jewish practice of Musar. And we spoke about uh, Musar last week. And, um, and it's the, the practical, it's the gymnasium for the soul. Uh, it's, it's the process and the technology, if you like, uh, whereby somebody who has a tendency to just get angry, Ruhi introduces people to the idea that that's not inevitable, that is not hardwired into you, uh, neither is anger some kind of a growing boil or tumor that if it doesn't actually let itself out, it's going to explode with hideous consequences. Uh, the reality, of course, is that the more you are able to control your anger, the more you're able to suppress it, uh, the less strongly you feel the urge to be angry as time goes by. It's like anything else. The first time you, you, you run a mile or the first time you lift weights or the first time you do cardio, uh, it's hard. And then after a little while, it gets easier and easier. And then after a bit more time, you, you, it's, it's absolutely normal. And that's part of the thrilling process of uh, the, the technology of Musar. So, Ruhi, please take us from anger onto something else that, I mean, anger, I'm pleased we treated it first. It's so important, so destructive in relationships, yeah. not only with others, but it's, a, it's destructive even with yourself, right? Absolutely. Um, and I want to actually comment on what you just said, because I think part of the magic of, of Musser is that it's a program of character development that actually teaches you how to metabolize triggering things that happen to you. Meaning, you know, I think that if a person doesn't have um, any training, right, in, in this type of spiritual anger management, let's say, so then if they do just squelch it, they don't really have any way to think about it differently. So it does tend to boil, boil, boil until it explodes. The beauty of Musser is not just about managing your reactions, but it's actually about, about a complete reprogramming and how you think about it. And I'll just give you an example. Let's say that I have a child who happens to be acting in a very infuriating way, right? So imagine any, it, but okay. You use your imagination. I mean, just try. So, you know, without any training, right, without any practice, without any working on myself, here's what would come up in my head. This is ridiculous. This is crazy. Who does this child think they are? They, they can't control me. They should behave. I should be able to manage them. And so you don't have any ways of any better ways of thinking about the stimuli. So even if you have somehow trained yourself not to react, all of those infuriating thoughts are going to go somewhere. You're going to take them out on somebody. You're going to be in a bad mood for the rest of the day. You're going to have to do something with it. However, what happens in Musser, you know, and obviously I can't do justice in this short interview. So definitely read the book <laughs> and better yet study Musser. But with Musser training, what will happen is that here are some concepts that can replace those thoughts. This child was put into my life for a reason. I'm not sure what that reason is, but it is to teach me something. I am in a growth process in this lifetime. And this particular stimulus 
is there to help me become a better person. And that nothing that happens to me is random. Everything happens to me for a reason. If I am this child's mother right now, it's because I was chosen, I was intended, it was meant to be for me to be this person's mother. It's not, it shouldn't be anything other than what it is. This is exactly where I was put. This is exactly what I need to be. And that I can teach myself to act in a calmer way because I believe that it's warranted, right? Yes, it is my job to teach this child. That's a long-term process. It doesn't have to happen this minute today. Where are those thoughts coming from? Probably from arrogance. Is arrogance gonna help me? Is it gonna take me to where I need to go? It will not. How can I overcome my arrogance? That's a very, very long process. That's what Musser is about. But meaning that we learn a different way, the same way that you know a person can eat food that's nutritious, but if they're not well on the inside, their bodies will not metabolize that food appropriately and it won't dis disseminate the nutrition. So too, if a person is not you know built up, so to speak, within their soul, then the stimuli can come in and it can be something that's meant to grow them and change them. But if they don't know how to metabolize it and break it down, it's not going to serve them and feed them in the way that it needs to. And so that's what Moser does for us. And, you know, as you said, anger is just one example. There can be many examples. There's, um, um, you know, I'm challenged in how generous I'm going to be. I know everybody's donating, you know, a contribution to this particular fund, this particular cause, this particular institution. And I feel resentful. This is my hard-earned money. Why should I give it away? Well, there are better ways to think about it than that, right? When we, and, and part of what's fascinating about Musser is that growth happens both from the outside in and from the inside out. Meaning sometimes my insides are not quite there yet, but I'll behave in the right way and that will help shape my internal thinking. By the same token, sometimes my internal thinking is there. I totally know what I should do. I just haven't quite done it yet. And sometimes growth can happen like that too. But it really in its most ideal form is both. It's like the practice is happening on the outside and the thought change is happening on the inside. Um, I want to jump to uh, chapters five and six. Sure. Um, I, I gravitated to those chapters first. By the way, uh, is the order important? You know, do you recommend readers take these eight chapters in that order, or is that um, is that not the case? So I, let me just give the context of my of my uh, of my question is that uh, we teach the five F renewal program. Uh, five F's, family, friendship, faith, finances, and fitness. And we don't put them in a list. We put them on equidistant spots on the circumference of a circle. Mm -hmm. And then we draw lines connecting them all because this is the, there is no order. They, they're all equally important. You work on them all simultaneously. Are these eight in a design sequence for this course, or is it okay to, to take them out of order? So both, okay. <laughs> the, answer, the answer is both. Um, we put them in this order for a particular reason. Um, you know, we thought that the, the beginning chapters were going to be more accessible to people who did not have a background in Musser. Because for example, favorable judgment and forgiveness are things that anybody could say to themselves, oh, well, I mean, nobody wants to be judged and, and everybody 
has some sort of grudge that they need, you know, to work on forgiveness. So we thought that that would be sort of a way for like, kind of like uh, a door in, you know, to the concept of Muster, whereas the last chapters are a little bit more abstract and elusive, you know, renewal, Got it. Um, you know, even happiness, which of course, everybody would say that they want happiness, but it's still, it's much more abstract and less practical. Um, and then as we ordered the chapters, we did create transition. So it was walking from one step to the next, to the next. Good. But well, the then I'm, I'm going to recommend that we we read it in the sequence and yeah, um, I think so because I think and besides for which you know once it was in that order we referred back to previous chapters and built right. upon them thematically so that would probably be the easiest way you know to get the wisdom of the book yeah and as I say I I see the book as a course as a program yeah uh, you can you can really embark on one of the most exciting things you've ever done which is methodically take yourself in hand and start improving your spiritual parts just the way you work on improving your physical parts. But so chapter five and six respectively um, are speech and silence or exactly the way you put it, speech creating reality with our words, six silence, a path to wisdom. Um, I'm, uh, let's say a very introverted person. And uh, I've heard from Rabbi Daniel Lappin that that's a problem, that that's not how God created us. God created us with the phrase, uh, it's not good for man to be alone in general. So I'm, I don't like the fact that I'm introverted. Help me. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about the, the speech and silence chapter is that it all used to be in the speech chapter. It was one chapter. And then I noticed that that chapter was much longer than all the other chapters, um, probably because I'm speech speechful. <laughs> and so we decided to divide it into speech and its opposite, which is silence and explore them as two separate traits, as opposed to speech just being about, as opposed to silence just being about the opposite of speech. Um, and in it, what we explore is that, you know, and this is something that comes up several times throughout the book, no character trait, and this is one of the central principles of Musser, is that no character trait is all good or all bad. Of course, there are some character traits that are much better than others, but every character trait can be taken to an unhealthy extreme in either direction. And even the most beautiful character traits, such as generosity, kindness, love, can be used inappropriately if there are no limits or boundaries. And even the worst character traits, you know, um, have their time and place in whatever form they have it. So therefore, this, this concept of speech and silence, you know, you know, for a person to say, well, I'm an extrovert, you know, I, I can't help interrupting people. That's just what I do, you know, or to say, well, I'm an introvert and I don't want to speak up in a crowd. I'm just not comfortable. You know, well, in a sense, that goes back to the previous question, which is I am what I am, you know, and the truth is, yes, you are, you are what you are as a starting point. And it's likely that we're going to make the biggest impact on the world with our strengths, with the character traits that we're naturally good at. Right. So if somebody's an extrovert, it's likely that the, the biggest impact they're going to make on the world is via their extroversion. But nevertheless, their introversion is still something to be worked on, meaning that person still needs to teach themselves when to scale back, 
when to contract, when to remain silent and leave space for others. Conversely, the person who's an introvert will probably make their biggest impact on the world in smaller, more private, more one-on-one -on -one settings, personal impact, right? But from a Musser perspective, that person should still be challenging themselves to stretch the limits of their ability to do what is not comfortable, what is not natural. Right. Um, did you ever see um, that old Humphrey Bogart movie, African Queen? No. Okay. Now, I don't, I don't recommend movies very often. And you can even skip through it and just get a, a critical point where Catherine Hepburn draws herself up to her full height and looks at Humphrey Bogart, who has just insisted that intoxication and alcohol consumption are who he is. <laughs> and he said to her, leave me alone. It's my nature. And she pulls herself up and looks down at him. And she says, nature, Mr. Allnut, is what we were put into this world to overcome. Ooh, that's a great quote. Isn't, isn't that Musar? That is totally Musar. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting you say that because throughout the book, I do sprinkle references to movies, books, TED Talks, you know, just different things that I've read or seen or heard that, that I find interesting. Because as you just referenced, we do find bits of Musser wisdom floating around the world. All the time, know? yes. All the time. And if we have like our Musser glasses on, so to speak, yeah. we'll be quick to recognize them when we hear them and say, boom, there's yeah. wisdom right there. Um, I didn't see this book until it was finished and in print. Um, I, I knew it was coming and I, I knew you were working on it. But uh, I, I will tell you that, um, I mean, obviously, uh, like most rabbis, I have a background in Musar. And um, I'll be honest, I expected this to be a little less palatable. <laughs> I um, but the book is so readable and it draws you along page by page. It's it's it, it's a one sitting read for me. I mean, I couldn't stop. But obviously, after that, I wanted to go back and examine specifics and and see uh, little tips and tools that you insert here and there that I I was able to to start implementing for myself. And so it's. Um, it's, so I, I have to tell you, that is exactly what I have been hearing from people. And to me, that's the biggest compliment, because what I tried to do in this book, it, it's almost you wonder, can one book do this, which is that I was trying to be relatable and down to earth, not overly academic or preachy. That was a very big thing I was trying to avoid. Yeah, it's not preachy at all. Yeah. And, and thank you. But by the same token, I wanted to give rich, deep wisdom with teeth that could change your life. And so the desire to do both of these things, you know, it, it can somehow, it can sometimes feel mutually exclusive. One of the earliest compliments I got about the book is a friend of mine who said exactly what you just said. She said, I sat down and read the whole thing in one sitting. And now, cause I had asked if she would write an Amazon review and she goes, oh no, no, no. Now I have to go back and read it for real. So that really, that really was very gratifying to hear because it meant that it was readable or palatable, as you said, but by the same token, you were like, but I, I want to read it again because I want to get, I want to really get all the little nuggets, you know, and 
And really that's, that goes back to the people who asked me to write this book because it wasn't just so that they could give the book to their husband and say, Ruchi said, you better behave yourself, <laughs> but for their own selves, because there are certain things that you want to read and reread and review. And when it comes to character development, it's a lifelong project. You never graduate from that school. There's always going to be new triggers and new stimuli. And even though, you know, if you are a person who's working on yourself, you'll notice that you're transforming. And that's the transformation that I describe in some of the testimonials. But there's always going to be new frontiers and new stimuli. So you always want to keep, you know, reviewing and studying. And, and that's part of the Musser program that Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musser movement, recommended is this constant review because you're never done growing and you're never done learning. So, yes. you know, God willing, this book can be a, a resource for that. Um, I know I know you are aware of this, I, I got to think, but, but Benjamin Franklin uh, was very much on that same track. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and people don't know the extent to which one of the founders of the United States of America um, diligently practiced the mm -hmm. air, the field of Musar. He didn't call it Musar, but there was exactly what he writes about. And it's exactly what he does. Yeah. And, and Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was influenced in some of that in his compilation of the 13 character traits exactly. that he felt most important. I, I didn't want to say that. If uh, if it was, I didn't know it was something you were familiar with. So thank you. Yes, you're right. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't I don't say that as any disrespect whatsoever to Rabbi Salanter. In fact, I think the opposite is true. Is that what I said before? That muster wisdom is everywhere, and we are actually taught to seek wisdom wherever it may be found. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So, yeah. So absolutely. I love that, actually. And I and I, I find it so exciting when I find Musser wisdom hiding in psychology or in technology or anywhere. It's just because we live in a cohesive world. This is not a silo. This is wisdom that's meant to be experienced everywhere we go and, and everything we in everything we do. The book is is incredibly effective um, and. And it's in, in important ways, it's different, you know, from what else you'll, you'll see on the shelf of self-help books in the bookstore. Yes, this is a self-help book. It not only will help the reader, um, it will help anybody the reader lives with or works with or interacts with. Uh, you, you will become a better person to interact with on the part of other people. So uh, it is different. But I'm sure I'm sure you've thought about this or been asked this before, but how do you see this book uh, as standing out from the others on the shelf? You know, it's interesting. When I was first figuring out what type of publisher I needed for the book, I couldn't decide if I wanted to go the self-help route or the religious route. Um, and what I realized pretty early on is that it's too religious for self-help and it's too self-help for religious. <laughs> um, That's very true. But the truth of the matter is that I think what sets it apart from the pack is the religious content because, you know, self-help, look, I mean, it comes and goes, it's trendy, it's fashionable. You know, when I think about some of the self-help books that I read as a young mother, you know, a lot of them are not really that relevant anymore today, but this, and this is, you know, the wording of the subtitle, you know, you joke that it has a lot of words. Every word is really quite deliberate. And the one word I want to focus on right now is timeless from the timeless Jewish pra practice of Musser. And that's what really makes this different from self-help because 
We're talking about wisdom that is thousands of years old. And what's so mind blowing is that when I study and I've studied with my classes and with my groups, both ancient and contemporary texts, and while each one has, you know, its pros and cons, what's fascinating about studying the ancient texts is that human nature never changes. You read King Solomon's words from thousands of years ago, people are struggling with exactly the same thing. Arrogance, money, patience, you know, search for meaning. These are all the same things that people are, you know, struggling with today. So the fact, what makes this different is that this, this stuff will never be trending because it's timeless. It really does transcend time. And, you know, when you think about something that has helped the universe for thousands of years, that's just going to be different from anything that you're going to just, you know, come across in your typical bookstore. That's one of the very best descriptions I've ever heard of, of what makes this approach different from, from everything else. That's beautiful and, um, and, and really 100% accurate. Um, I, I, I sometimes say that uh, all that technology does is camouflage how little anything has changed. <laughs> that is so true. I, you know, I gotta tell uh, you, my, last night my grandfather spent exactly the same number of days away from home on business travel as I do. <laughs> Except by him it was on a, a wagon and he slept on a pallet of straw in an inn. And by me, it's on a on a on a plane and I sleep in a good hotel. But in terms of the basic discomforts of travel, nothing's changed. Yeah. And he traveled for business and I travel for business. And so it is where I, I can't put it better than you did. I mean, that's just the reality. Our relationships with our children, our relationships with our siblings and our parents and our friends, nothing has changed. And, uh, and so the latest pages of psychology today are not going to be as useful as the book of Proverbs. No, they, they really won't. Um, you know, and it's so interesting. Sometimes, you know, I'll come across some, psychology. I, I happen to love psychology and I'm very interested in it. And sometimes I'll come across something and I'll be like, wow, that's amazing. You know, uh, the Torah has been saying that for thousands of years, you know, and some people will look at that as, oh, wow, look, the Torah is right because psychology <laughs> said so. And I'll be like, no, no, no. Psychology is right because the Torah said so. Right. You know, so it's interesting to look at, you know, in thousands of years, these things do not change. Um, you know, the human being has always sought meaning in our experience as a human being on this planet. And, and, and here this is, it's been here all along. It's been here for thousands of years. You know, it's like the undiscovered secret of the universe. And I just couldn't be more excited about that. Um, here's a, a little story you're free to use. I hand it to you as a, a gift. Okay. Um, my father, in making that very point you've just made, uh, my father told me that he was once standing in front of the Mona Lisa painting in the Louvre in Paris, and there was a tourist. Now, I'm sorry to say my father said it was an American tourist, um, but be that as it may, um, my dad said apparently this tourist sort of tilted his head from side to side, and um, and he sort of rubbed his, his uh, chin a little bit, and then finally he said, it's not bad. <laughs> and at that point, the gendarme who was standing on guard next to the painting stepped forward and said, sir, uh, when you stand in front of the Mona Lisa, she is not on trial. You are. <laughs> of course, it was an American tourist. What's the question? 
but that's right. I mean, when you compare something to scripture, um, scripture is not on trial. Um, psychology or, or you or the latest headline is. That's great. I yeah. love that. Um, the climax of the whole piece, of the whole work, um, and folks, just a reminder, we're talking about soul construction. That's Ruchi Koval's book, and um, it's subtitled Shape Your Character Using Eight Steps from the Timeless Jewish Practice of Musar. And the, the climax of the book um, is Chapter 8, Happiness, Another Inside Job. Yeah, I think that might be my favorite chapter. I, I can see why. Um, inside job, what does that mean? It means that we very often look outside of ourselves for happiness. And again, the common contemporary parlance that we use is that something makes me happy, makes me sad. It puts the power in somebody else's hands, or as I say it, it puts the keys to happiness in somebody else's pocket. And what this chapter really explores is that there are actually very practical and specific ways to achieve happiness. And the Torah sheds light on how to do that. And it's not that complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Happiness comes from gratitude. Happiness comes from faith. Happiness comes from working on our envy. And understanding and that's another thing that I, I do in the book is at the end of each chapter I write what are the obstacles to that chapter and that that's patterned after one of the ancient Moser texts the the ways of the just the path of the just where with each chapter the author Rabbi Moshe Chaim Luzado an Italian rabbi explores what are the obstacles to that character trait so that a person can start to recognize where am I self-sabotaging? I say that I want to be happy, but I'm not doing things that bring me happiness. I say that I want to be patient, but I'm not doing things that help me be more patient. So it's an inside job because I think that, you know, even, I mean, if you look at Thomas Jefferson in the preamble, you know, to the, to the, uh, Constitution, uh, the Declaration of Independence, he says, you know, the pursuit of happiness, meaning that happiness is outside of ourselves. That's the subtext. It's outside of ourselves and we have to chase it. But Torah wisdom tells us exactly the opposite. It's inside of you and you have to uncover it. And again, I think that's a revolutionary concept. Rabbi Moses Chaim Luzzato, the Italian rabbi you quote, uh, was from which century? It's a few hundred years ago, isn't I it? I think, yeah, maybe yeah, 500 years ago. It's a while back. Um, I've just recently become aware of just how uh, dense and rich Jewish academic life was in Italy in the 17th century, in the 18th century, maybe even in the 16th, actually. Yes, I think so. Anyway, it's just, it's just extraordinary. And, uh, we, you know, when I was 16 and 17, um, there was a Musa... Uh, period at uh, my yeshiva, which uh, I'm sorry to confess, I skipped more often than not. <laughs> All I can say is, and I mean this only respectfully, if you had been teaching Musar at my yeshiva, I'd have been in that class, would have been better well, for me. That's a big compliment. Thank you. Because <laughs> no, it wasn't taught. It wasn't taught the way it really is. Mm -hmm. In other words, I mean, a practical program to embark on one of the most exciting journeys in your life, which is to get better at something. 
Yeah. And the way I would put it is to become the best version of yourself. That's right. And I think that's very apt because the point here is not to become someone you're not. It, it's not to become fake or inauthentic or a counterfeit of yourself. Rather, you know, what this whole program is about is that the belief that there is an absolutely beautiful soul within me because I am created in the image of God, because every human being is created in the image of God. And therefore, what this program really helps to do is to uncover all the external layers that are not really serving me even if they are in my default mode personality wise and to sort of like an onion peel back those layers until I get to the best version of me. Every person has a million versions that they could be right. But we want to try to be the best versions of who we are. I mean, what could be more exciting than that? You know? And, and so I just, I think, and this is something interesting as you mentioned, even there are people in my classes who did grow up with the concept of Musser and who did learn Musser, you know, as children, but it wasn't necessarily taught in that way. Um, and I think sometimes Musser can be taught kind of one dimensionally, like you should be more kind, you should be more patient. That's right. Without any caveats. But guess what? Kindness can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. Patience can be taken to an unhealthy extreme, right? So there needs to be nuance to this discussion. And that's really how we uncover the best versions of ourselves. And, and what's beautiful too, is it's not just a focus on our weaknesses, but rather it's a discovery of our strengths. You know, wow, like I happen to be a very extroverted, talkative person. And, you know, a lot is a lot of value is placed on the character trait of silence in classic Musser literature. But when you learn Musser, you also learn of where it's appropriate to speak up and where having a talkative, confident personality is a boon to your soul and to other people's soul. So then you start to feel really, you know, gratified with your strengths and you feel empowered around your weaknesses. So I love that you use the word exciting because, I mean, listen to me. I'm just so excited talking about it. I really, and, and, that's a great word. And you write to be, and it's exactly what everyone who reads this book is going to feel as well. Um, it's called Soul Construction by Ruhi Koval. And um, frankly, you should get more than one. I'm, I'm, telling you my best advice here, you should have more than one because you're going to want to share it with people. And if you share it with somebody close to you, that you can embark on this exciting program together. It is literally an eight-step program to unprecedented growth. It's truly, truly exciting. Um, I've been getting messages um, there are sisters who are buying it. They're going to, they're going to study it together over the phone. One sister lives here in Cleveland. One lives in Israel. Um, mother, daughter sets book clubs. I, I just got a text this morning. A woman ordered 15 copies for her book club. So it's, there's so many different ways to use the book. And also your, your small groups at church or synagogue, um, way to go on this. Let me tell you. So, um, uh, you definitely want to look out soul construction, uh, by Ruhi Koval. It's brand new. And uh, in, in a sense, it's 3,000 years old, but brand new. Um, uh, yeah, it, I'm not 3,000 years old. Just wanted to make that clear. And you know what? You don't even look it, even though Thank you, you. <laughs> even though, though you speak with the wisdom of the years. Um, appreciate that. So, you know, no worries there. Uh, the, um, uh, it, it re it's an eight-step program. And the culmination of it is the eighth chapter on happiness. And um, 
And as we uh, bring this in for a landing, Ruchi, I I was so excited by one of the characteristics of that chapter where you you structure a certain approach to happiness around the fact that um, scripture has at least fourteen different yeah. Hebrew words for happiness and joy. Yeah, that's one now, of my favorite parts. Languages are very different. I, I promise you Russian does not have many words for happiness <laughs> or joy. I'm not sure it has one, but it probably has a lot of words for dark, deep misery. Um, <laughs> German doesn't have a lot of, I mean, they even have to structure words to come yeah. up with happiness. It's not natural to the language, uh, but many, many different words for warfare and different yeah, aspects of warfare, which has mm-hmm. been a part of the Germanic people for many, many centuries. Mm-hmm. But um, but Hebrew, 14 words for happiness. This like parallels the Inuit nuances for the word snow. Um, yeah. But um, And what's interesting is not only are they part of the language, but, you know, in the Jewish religious uh, liturgy, they appear all the time. We, we mention them often in our life cycle experiences and what have you. So, you know, it's an important part of the culture that 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 happiness is a goal and a gift and that we should be living lives full of joy. And this is is really attainable. And here's the best part of it. It doesn't depend on anybody else or anything outside of yourself. That's one of the great takeaways of the eighth chapter of Ruchi's book, Soul Construction. Um, Anything to wrap up with, Ruchi, that uh, you would like our listeners to be aware of? And I'll be talking about this as well. What's that? I'll be talking about it some more as well. But uh, but yeah, no, I really I wanted to really, um, you know, I'm just so grateful for the education that I received growing up that allowed me to write this book and all the people who have taught most or who came before me, uh, you know, in their various forms and really all of which have had a deep influence on me. And I'm just so grateful that I get to teach something that's so beautiful and so exciting and so um, necessary and relevant. It's just it's it's really been like such an incredible gift in my it's, life. It's to be really life enhancing. Yeah. And, and all my students who have, you know, taken the time to study this and, and who have enhanced my life with their reflections and their insights. Um, so the, the learning has definitely been, you know, two ways. And I'm extremely grateful for all of the relationships that I've been able to develop through the study of Musser. Well, the book really is a tribute not just to you, but to your teachers, and yes, to your students that also teach you, and uh, and to all your experiences. So congratulations on making it happen, Thank and uh, bringing to all of us this uh, incredibly uplifting self-improvement book, Soul Construction, Shape Your Character Using Eight Steps from the Timeless Jewish Practice of Musar. I will wish you a wonderful trip to Israel. Thank you. And a Shabbat Shalom. And I, I hope we'll be able to have you back on the Rabbi Daniel Appen show in the future. Shabbat Shalom. And I would love that. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, head over to the website, rabbidaniellappen.com and um, look in the store there for Ruchi's book, Soul Construction. 
get yourself a copy. And uh, what I think you'll find useful, it, it's something Susan and I have done with a number of different books, and that is you may want to also get a copy for somebody you'll work with on the program meaning that uh, you both agree during this week we're going to read chapter one and even if that person is on the other side of the world uh, connect you know by by phone or by internet or by zoom and then you discuss the the chapter you've you've done what this does is not only does it uh, help solidify the concepts in your heart but it's it's fun if you're embarking on something that is as challenging as self-development. You are really trying to make of yourself a bigger and better person than you are. It really is helpful to to have somebody along, to have somebody joining you for the for the journey. So uh, try and look into that possibility. Uh, the uh, the the topic I left you with today. Uh, the supply chain problems not going away real soon, not caused by COVID. COVID is being exploited as the excuse so that we don't end up blaming the people who are truly responsible for causing the supply chain problems. And uh, the question, though, is what to do about it. I also didn't touch on another aspect of the problem, which is tied into this, and that is inflation. Um, obviously, a shortage of goods drives price up, um, producing, injecting more money into the economy by printing money, as the Biden administration is doing, obviously means more money chasing fewer goods and services, driving those prices up. And so uh, there's, there's a lot going on there. My job is to help you with how to cope with all of that. And I realize I didn't do much of that in today's show at all. I was really just laying out, uh, I think, the, the, the sort of seldom heard, somewhat revolutionary notion that, no, it is not COVID that's causing this. This was going to happen anyway. The economy has been abused and exploited and overregulated and stifled uh, for 50, 60 years already. And we are simply... Um, experiencing the consequences of that and it was a bit of a, uh, a perfect storm type situation in that it happened to coincide with the challenges that the government's reaction to COVID added to the mix and caused. So um, the question is what to do about the fact, in other words, how do you take care of your finances and your family and your friendships and your faith and your fitness. How do you take care of those things in the face of supply chain problems and even more seriously, uh, inflation, which unfortunately I will show you next time we're together that it is much higher than government acknowledged figures and it's not transitory, as you're being told. It's not going away anytime soon. I'm really not being a bad news bear here. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not just trying to to give you sensational bad news because i suspect many of you already uh, knew that the supply chain problem is more serious than they suggested and that inflation is more serious than you're being told so i don't know that i'm, I'm necessarily telling you as much as perhaps confirming that there are problems but still uh, all of that has to be dealt with and the question is what can you do right what the government could do is a lot but they're not asking us 
but you are there doing me the honor of listening to my words, and that places an obligation on me to provide value for the time you invest on this show. And that's exactly what we're going to do the next time we're together coming up soon. For now, all that remains is for me to thank you for being part of the show, uh, to remind you that now would be a good time to make sure that you have already read the free ebook download, which you can get right now at rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, this is a book called The Holistic You. And it's filled with information that is critical to understanding what I'm going to be talking about next time, which is coping in a time of supply chain problems and serious inflation. So make sure you get that download, The Holistic You. It's a simple little book, and you'll get it at rabbidaniellappin.com. This is also a good time to uh, take a free trial membership in We Happy Warriors, Uh, because there is now a lot of content which we are choosing to share through the We Happy Warriors platform. So that would be a place to look as well, wehappywarriors.com, and go ahead and do a trial membership. See if you like being part of our community of We Happy Warriors in a much more active way than we were able to do in the old way. So we hope this is an improvement for everybody. We're certainly planning it that way. And um, we uh, say now goodbye. I mean, that's really where we're up to. So I wish you a wonderful week with your faith and with your family, with your finances and your friendships and your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.